I want to I start this morning with a little, a little game. Maybe you've done this before as an icebreaker. It's called the Desert Island Game. You guys heard of this? So here's the idea. Uh, you're stuck on a desert island, and you can only have one thing. So you can play, you know, what would be the one book that you would take to the desert island? What would be the one movie or the one personal item? Um, but there's no cheating. You can't take a, a book that tells you how to get off a desert island. And your one personal item can't be like a motorboat or something like that, okay? Um, and let's just assume that there's a Gideon's Bible on the island already. <laughs> so don't choose that, even if, you know, you want to sound religious or whatever. Um, but let's go ahead and I, I, let's play it for a second, okay? So turn to someone next to you. If you don't know the person, say hello and tell them what would be, what would be your one thing. It could be a book, could be a movie, could be a personal item and uh, exchange those things, okay? All right, go for it. All right, let's come back together. Did everyone get a chance to say their, what their thing would be? All right, what, what were some of them? Anyone want anyone to say what their thing was? Fresh water. It's borderline cheating, but we'll... That's, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's really important on, on a desert line. Anyone else? Any books? You want your Kindle? Nice. And lots of battery charge. Paul, what'd you have? Toilet paper. <laughs> good, good. Very practically minded folks this morning. Oil, like, like, uh, like essential oils and lip balm or something. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> oh, write a memoir. My life on the island. <laughs> awesome. I thought I would probably bring um, a musical instrument so I wouldn't get bored. Although I think if push came to shove, I could make a flute out of bamboo or something. Um, and then maybe Bonnie would let me on the music team uh, if I could do that. Practice that for five years. Um, but it can be hard to choose one thing, can't it? Even in like a, a silly game like this, what's, your, what's the one book or what's the one movie? It can be hard to like narrow it down to one thing. We have a hard time choosing one thing because there's so many options, right? And to say yes to one thing is to say no to another thing. So we do this thing with our kids at dinner where we'll do high lows. Helps them kind of process their day and helps them try to learn to listen to each other while we do it. And, you know, we'll sometimes have things like, and my third high is, and my fourth high is, it's hard to choose. I was uh, talking to my dad the other day, and uh, he was a public school teacher for 44 years. He chose one career, and he did it for four and a half decades. I mean, that's just not normal for my generation today to choose a career, choose one thing. How about choosing a spouse? Man, that's gotten even more difficult in our generation. How can you choose one person and be with them for the rest of your life? Our culture says, don't try to do that. See how long it goes. See how long it lasts. See how good it could be. You couldn't choose one person to be with for the rest of your life. You couldn't choose 
one person to be intimate for the rest of your life. It's hard choosing. Saying yes to one thing, choosing it, means saying no to other things. I, I had to learn this, and I'm still learning it, but as, as a, a young adult, I wanted to do all sorts of things. But I found that if I tried to say yes to everything, I couldn't really do any of them, not at a really deep level. I got to a point where I had to decide, if I want to drill down and really say yes to something, I've got to make that the one thing. If I want to say yes to having a family, then that's going to mean that's what I have to say yes to, and I have to say no to other things. If I want to say yes to a, a career for me of, of being a pastor, then that means I have to say no to being a super famous musician traveling the world and doing concerts. You know, um, that wasn't an option on the table for me, <laughs> but it was nice to know that I had that option open, maybe potentially. As we read uh, the book of Philippians this Lent, and as we read this section, um, did you see, did you hear Paul's focus? Did you hear how focused he was on one thing? He has a passionate pursuit, and he wants the church that he's writing this letter to, the church in Philippi, and he wants us who are reading this letter thousands of years later, he wants us to have the same focus. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain because a death, trusting in Christ, means that you will be with Christ. So Christ alive, Christ in death, he has his one thing. He has his one focus. And it's what we read in the psalm this morning. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Paul has his one thing that he would ask. He has the one thing he's seeking in his life is about. It's about Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, then as we study the Bible, I just want to invite you again in a deeper way to say, Jesus, I want you to be my one thing. I want my life and my death to be about you. And if you're here this morning and you haven't said that full, complete yes to Jesus, you're keeping some options open, you're thinking about it, you're weighing what your future will look like and what you'll give your life to, I just wanna ask you one question. What would you say your life is about? If you had to choose one thing in your life, what would that one thing be? How would you summarize it? What would it be about? Well, let's look at what Paul's one thing is. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible here, we have uh, some on the table over here. I'd love for you to grab one and use that or pull it up on your phone. We're starting uh, this morning in verse, at the end of verse 18, the beginning of verse 19. And um, this is a letter to Paul, and it's a really personal letter. Some, some of his letters are more personal than others, but this one, he's really talking about what's going on in his life. He's writing this letter from prison. He's in the city of Rome, and he's awaiting a trial. And that trial could end in one of two ways. That trial could end with him being released, and that trial could end with him being executed. And so as he writes this letter, he's kind of processing all of that. As I was reading it this week, it reminded me of uh, in high school when I read the diary of Anne Frank, 
who was a young girl in a Jewish family hiding from the Nazis in World War II. And you could see her processing what her life was. And Paul's doing a similar thing. So he begins, it's my expectation and hope that I'll not be ashamed. This is verse 20. That whether by life or by death, Christ will be honored in my body. Those are the two outcomes of his trial. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he's trying to, to think about whether being uh, released would be better or whether dying would be better. Can you imagine having that thought? I'm in prison and I could be executed. I wonder if it would be better to be executed or to be released. I don't think that's what the Philippians were expecting when they got the letter from Paul. You know, him, him saying, I could be okay with dying. Uh, yeah, that could be good. <laughs> and he's not just trying to sugarcoat it. He's not just giving the Philippians like, hey, how are you, Paul? Oh, I'm good. Prison, execution. But no, I'm good, I'm good. He's not putting a good face on a bad situation. He's not naive. This isn't like a naive sense of optimism Paul has here. Paul has been here before. This isn't his first imprisonment. In Corinthians, he talks about all the things he's been through in his life. Imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times receiving 40 lashes. Three times beaten with sticks. Once stoned, meaning they threw stones at him, just to clarify. Three times he was shipwrecked. He drifted at sea, dangerous from robbers, dangerous from the wilderness, toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He's been through a lot. He has looked death in the face, and he's looking death in the face again. He's not naive. He's not just optimistic. And he's not, he's not trying to escape either. This isn't just like, oh, my life has been hard, and I want to be out. I'm done. I've had all I can take. An uh, Anglican pastor uh, named N.T. Wright was, uh, wrote this about this section of Philippians. He said, this is not a death wish in the sense of someone losing self-esteem, becoming terminally depressed, longing to get out of this life as quickly as possible. Paul is full of life and energy and quite ready to get back to the work the minute they let him out of prison. But Paul is also a man in love with the Messiah. The central thing about dying is that it will mean going to be with Jesus, his Lord, his master, and his king. So he lives a life and he anticipates a death with a Jesus perspective, with a, a Jesus focus. Bonnie and I were um, in Mexico a little while ago and we got to climb um, the ruins of Coba one of the uh, seven wonders of the new world, all of these Mayan ruins there. And so there was this pyramid, and it was 120-some steps up to the top. And when you stood at the bottom of it, it didn't look that tall. It looked like a piece of cake to climb this thing, you know? Um, I do 10 steps upstairs in my house all the time. Why would this be harder? Uh, and you climb up it, and you're facing the pyramid, and then you turn around, and you look. And the view is so drastically different. We'd been walking underneath the trees and down on the ground, but now we're up above and we could see over the trees and we could see hills and lakes and valleys in the distance. And it didn't look that high, but the perspective was incredibly different. 
And what Paul has here is he has a higher perspective. He's a gospel perspective. His entire life, how he looks at his life, and his entire death, how he looks at his death, is shaped by Jesus' life and his death on the cross and his resurrection. That has changed how Paul sees everything. If he's released, well, he'd given his life to knowing Jesus and helping other people know Jesus. So that's what he's doing while he's in prison. And if he's released, that's what he'll keep doing. It's a gospel perspective. He'd done that in a lot of different ways. He'd worked in the marketplace making tents. He'd worked as a missionary. He'd worked staying in one area for a long time. He'd worked traveling. But in any case, his life was about knowing Jesus and helping other people know Jesus. He says at the end of this letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, in whatever situation I've learned to be content, whether in need or in plenty. Why? See, the gospel perspective, wherever he's at, his life's about the same thing, the same one thing, Jesus. And if he's executed, if he dies, well, his death will be because he knows Jesus. He says just a few verses earlier in uh, 13, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's in prison because of Christ. If he dies, it will be for Christ. And all those people who are watching will have the opportunity to know Jesus because of Paul's death. Well, that's what his life's about. But he also knows that to be absent from his body is to be present with Jesus. So he's with Jesus now. He's helping people know Jesus. But when he dies, his death will help people know Jesus. And then he will be face-to-face with the Jesus that he longs to be with. That's his gospel perspective, his singular focus. I've been reading uh, this book called Knowing God by another Anglican uh, named J.I. Packer. This is what he says. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? The knowledge of God. Paul knows this. Because Paul knows Jesus, he's made knowing Jesus the one thing in his life. He's given everything a Jesus gospel perspective. His life, his death, his life after death is all about Jesus. For him, to lie, uh, to her, for him to live is Jesus. For him to die is Jesus. How does Paul's story end? Um, we don't have all the details. We know that about five years later, Paul was executed in Rome. Some tradition has that he went to Spain first. He was released, went to Spain, planted churches there, came back to Rome. We don't know if he ever made it back to the Philippians that he says he longs to see in this letter. He was part of the uh, execution of Christians at the hands of Roman Emperor Nero. Um, Peter was crucified by Nero, and Paul was likely beheaded by Nero. I wonder what those imperial guards were thinking when they saw Peter and Paul executed. I wonder what difference it made. I wonder what Paul would say to us now that he has died, if he could write a 
heavenly letter to us. You know what I think he'd say? I think he'd say what he says in chapter 3 of Philippians. Whatever I gain, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is what Paul's life was all about. That was his one thing. And you know what? Since Paul, hundreds of thousands of millions of Christians in the church have followed him and have said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The church has made Jesus her one thing. I read this article a while ago. Um, it's from October of 2015, and it's about 11 um, Christians who were killed in Syria. They uh, were from Syria. They had converted to Christianity from uh, Islam, and they were telling others about Jesus. And the article says that uh, these indigenous missionaries were not required to stay at their ministry base at the village near Aleppo, Syria. Rather, the ministry director who trained them had entreated them to leave. As ISIS and other rebel groups and the Syrian government forces turned Aleppo into a war zone of carnage and destruction, ISIS took over these outlying villages and the Syrian ministry workers, these 11 Christians, they chose to stay in order to provide aid to the survivors in the name of Jesus. Here's what their ministry leader said. He said, I asked them to leave, but I gave them the freedom to choose. And every time I talked to them, they were always saying, we want to stay here. This is what God has told us to do. This is what we want to do. We need to stay and share the gospel. They were captured on August 7th. On August 28th, they're brought out in front of the village and asked to uh, deny Jesus, say we don't know him. But they didn't. And they were killed. And there are reports from the villagers who watched this who just said, the whole time they're just saying the name of Jesus. And they're praying the Lord's Prayer. And they're looking up into heaven with smiles on their faces. I mean, there's dozens that that has been their story just this last year in Syria. And there's dozens more who, having seen that, have given their life to Jesus. There's stories of soldiers who killed and executed Christians and then laid down their weapons and left and converted to Christianity. Because in their deaths, they knew Jesus. And in their deaths, they helped others know Jesus. And even in parts of the world where our physical life isn't always in danger, the church for generation after generation has decided to live with a gospel perspective that says our lives are completely shaped by Jesus' death and his life. It's Christians who take care of orphans and care for widows when it's easier to just take care of yourself. It's Christians who give up their weekends so they can help women caught in human trafficking all over our western suburbs get out of it because Jesus cares about every single person. It's people who pray for the unborn and who help mothers keep and have their unborn children because Jesus cares about every single life. It's Christians who welcome refugees and immigrants and spend their time and money and energy and love because Jesus welcomed us. It's 
Christians who serve as teachers year after year after year in our schools because Jesus said, bring the little kids to me. It's Christians who forego robust retirement accounts because they give generously of all their money so that they can love and care for and serve others. None of those things make sense except in a gospel perspective that says for me to live is Jesus and for me to die is Jesus and everything else comes secondary. It's person after person in this church over the last year that we have watched make Jesus their one thing and make gospel perspective decisions to quit jobs, to sell houses, to not sell houses, to not change jobs, to do what Jesus is calling them to do, to take risks and to love other people because Jesus took a risk to love us. The witness of the church is a radical gospel perspective that says this life, it's about one thing, Jesus. And our death, well, that's about one thing too, Jesus. And in our gospel reading today, we see that Jesus' life was about one thing too. They tell him, Jesus, you've got to leave. Herod's going to come kill you. And Jesus says, no. You tell him, I've got work to do. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And on the third day, I'll go to Jerusalem. And he says, when I get to Jerusalem, they'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's he talking about? What is the third day? Why Jerusalem? Why will they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Jesus is talking about his passion. He's talking about his passion week, the week that begins with Palm Sunday, where he enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, that feast that we'll celebrate in just four weeks. And the the streets are lined with people and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And throughout that week, he's wrongly accused and arrested. He's imprisoned, he's beaten, he's convicted. He's executed on the cross. It's his passion. It's his one thing. It's the one thing that his life was about and he cared about. It was us. We were his passion. You know, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus says, for me to live is you. And to die is so that you and I can live together. Paul gives up his life to know Jesus. The church gives up our life to know Jesus. Jesus gives up his life to know us. That's his passion. That's his one thing. And Jesus in his life and in his death and his coming back to life transforms, resurrects our lives. So they don't have to be about petty, meaningless things anymore. They can be about him. Our life can be about him because he died and was raised again. Our death can be about him because he died and was raised again. And our life after death will be with him. Lent is about fixing our gaze on Jesus, longing to see him in his beauty making him the one thing in our life that matters most. Seeing all of our life from the gospel perspective of the cross and the resurrection. He's supposed to be our one thing every day, but we get 
so distracted and we forget and other things come in. And so the church reminds us, the church brings us back in Lent and says, just make him your one thing again. Say no to whatever you have to say no to so that Jesus can be the one thing you say yes to. Lent leads us on a journey to Holy Week where like we read in the Psalm, we will dwell in the house of the Lord. We will gaze upon his beauty and there's nowhere that Jesus is more beautiful than on the cross where he gives his life for us. And we'll come to service after service after service because for a week we get to live the reality that one day we'll live forever, which is that Jesus is everything. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain because I gained Christ. What is your one thing? What would you put in that blank space? For me to live is blank. For me to die is blank. For me to live is my work. For me to live is my happiness. For me to live is my comfort or predictability. For me to die is anxiety. For me to die is uncertainty. What would what would you put in, honestly? What would you put in that blank in your life? For me to live is pleasure and to die is pain. For me to live is everything and to die is nothing. What would it be? If you're really honest with yourself, what would it be? What would go there? Are you happy with that answer? Does that satisfy your soul? anything but Jesus, it never will. In life or in death. You can give your life to Jesus today. You can say no to whatever you have to say no to so you can say yes to him. You can let his death and his resurrection bring a new perspective, a new height a new one thing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the witness of the Apostle Paul who made his life about you. We thank you for the witness of the church through the ages throughout the world today that makes her life all about you, knowing you, helping others know you. And Lord, we just ask that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and fill our vision with a brand new perspective. Help us climb up out of the everyday and into what you see when you look at the world, when you look at us in our lives. Or if we thank you that your passion, your one thing was us. You may be here this morning and you have never made Jesus your one thing. You have never said no 
to other ways and said, I want to follow Jesus' way and I want to know him. And if that's you this morning, I just want to, I just want to invite you. You can do that. You can say, Jesus, I want you to be my one thing. I want to follow you. I want you to be in charge of my life and my priorities and my perspective. I believe that by your death and, and your cross and your resurrection, you made a way for me to know you and you forgave my sins so I can know you, that one day after death I can know you forever. Maybe you've made that decision before, but you have something in your life that has distracted you, that has become a one thing that is other than Jesus. Or maybe there's lots of things that, that drown out your relationship with Jesus. I just invite you, you can confess that right now. You can confess that thing that has gotten in the way of your knowing Jesus and making him known. Lord Jesus, as we journey towards your passion together as a church, I pray that we would be a church of people who would be all about you, all about knowing you and helping others know you. I pray that you would minister to us now the reality of your desire to know us, your love and your passion for us that you came here and gave your life to give us life and to make us your one thing. I pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.